Amen. So a lot of what we're going to talk about this morning is what it looks like to come to Jesus to see the spiritual change and transformation that we long for in our lives to come to pass. We're working our way through the book of Colossians in a series on uh, Christ above all, the theme of Colossians. We're in chapter 3, and last week and this week are uh, sort of a pair, as last week we started talking about um, chapter 3, where Paul is, is uh, addressing the, the spiritual life and what it looks like to grow and to be sanctified in Christ. And he said it's a two-part work of putting off and putting on, putting to death and bringing to life. And last week we talked about putting to death. If you missed it, I encourage you to go back. Uh, ben Parker's been doing a great job, caught us up on all the sermons in the last couple of months, and it's all up to date. Uh, but you can go back and listen to that. This week we're moving forward to putting on, on the positive side of, uh, of this process. So we're in Colossians 2, verses, uh, Colossians 3, verses 12 to 14. Hear then the word of God. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also. Forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in a perfect harmony. The Word of God. Father in heaven, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks. You are not silent. Oh, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are changed. Lives that are transformed. Make us into the image of Christ, to your own image, by the power of your Spirit. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Last week we talked about a child who at the moment of his birth is born king. And his father at some point in his life as he's grown up explains to him, son, at the moment you were born, you were king. And you're king right now. And someday you will ascend the throne in the fullness of your powers and you will reign as king. And so now you have to put off your childless and childishness and your worldly desires and you must go into training. You must be trained and disciplined in the royal character and trained to be who you are because you were born a king and you will reign as king. And this is who you are. You must learn to be who you are. And this is the way the Bible presents our own identity in Christ. That when we are born again, when we are born in Him, you are set apart. You are holy. You were born again holy in Christ. And right now, you're standing. It's who you are. You are holy. But one day, one day, Sin will be done, and we will see him, and we will be like him in the fullness, and we will come, and we will be holy and fully complete. 
But every day until that day, we are to train in body and soul to be who we are, who we were born to be on the very day that we came to know Christ. And we said that this is a twofold work, this training. The Bible says that we have things that we must put off or put to death, and then there is a life that is to be put on, things that are be, to be brought to life in us. Last week we began to talk about ways to engage in the killing of our sin so that it won't be killing us. We talked about that. You can go back and review some of that. But today we want to move forward as incredibly important as putting our sin to death so that it will not be putting us to death. As incredibly important as it is, one of the mistakes that you and I make, that we often make, is to put all of our energy and all of our attention in focus and strength into that process alone. What we do is we decide, okay, putting sin to death, we're supposed to stop and to put off all those things we said last time from immorality and and sinful thoughts to our anger and our wrath and all of these things. And we decide, well, all right, I'm going to put these off today. I'm not going to do it. And we just buckle down and we think that if we just try hard enough, if we just give it enough focus and attention, if we grit our teeth, that we will just stop doing it. Just not do it today. But if you're like me, you have discovered when you try to do that, that we can't stop. And we do it again, and we do it again, and we do it again. We have to believe in the deepest part of us. I tried to say it last week as we discover that it's too hard, it's too much. We are not able, that we must believe in the absolute deepest part enough that apart from him, we can do nothing. And that's part of what this process discovers to us as you try to do it and discover in yourself that I need something more, which is why our main strategy can't just be to put it off. We do need something more. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And so in Romans 6, verse 11, that we looked at last week, and we talked about the things that we have to consider, to think about. It says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin. And that's what we've been talking about. You must start, you must think this way. I'm dead to sin, so I will put it to death. It is who I am. It is what he has done. And so I am going to engage in it. But it goes on to say, and you must also consider yourselves, think this way, as alive unto God in Christ Jesus. And that alive unto God. In other words, we have to think this way, consider yourself this way, simultaneously as dead to sin, and as we go about putting it to death, simultaneously we have to think and consider ourselves and nurture a life that is alive unto God. God. And that is the positive aspect that empowers and sets us free to resist and to starve and to fight and to put to death our sin. But we'll never accomplish it unless there is an aliveness unto God that is being nurtured and is coming to life in us.
and empowering us. And so in verse 12, he says, put on then. And then there is the same word that you see in verse 5 when he says, put to death therefore what belongs to the earthly nature, the fallen self. And here he says the same thing. Now put on therefore. And both of these commands, when he gets to the commands, both of them follow the therefore. We always talk about this, the indicatives of grace, before we get those imperatives of grace. And the imperative is to put to death and to put on, come to us as a command of something you're to do, but it follows as a therefore on all the indicatives of grace. And it's just like, again, they must be simultaneous. You cannot go about the command if you do not live in an understanding of the fullness of the indicatives from which they flow, that they are the therefore for. The truth of what God has already done. The truth about who you already are. You know, the grace that is already ours in Christ Jesus that he so richly tries to pour into us before he tells us to do anything. So I'm back in verses 9 and 10 as he says, to put off then the old self with its practices and to put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after its creator, the image of its creator, to put on this new self that already is there. He says, you've put off the old and you've already put on. In other words, God has imparted to you a spiritual life, a new self that is full and complete Because it's in Christ. It's complete. It it is full. It's like when a baby is born. A baby is small and he's weak and he's immature, but he's fully human. She's fully human. Can't be any more human. Right? And the spiritual life that has been imparted to you is full and complete. You can't be any more fully spiritually alive unto God in Christ, any more holy, any more the spiritual You can't be any more alive, so to speak. But you are like that baby. Incomplete. In the sense that you are not an adult. That you need to grow into the full stature of maturity. Physically mature. Emotionally mature. Psychologically and spiritually mature. And this this growth, and that's why he he says as you... um, Put, it, uh, put on the new self, you have put on in the past tense, you have put on the new self, but then in the present tense he says, which is being renewed. Right now, it is, it is meant to grow into the fullness of maturity. It's what it says in Ephesians 4 where Paul addresses these same things, Ephesians 4.13. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, and to a mature manhood, a mature womanhood, until we grow into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Right? And right before this, he talks about the role of pastors and teachers to, to train us and equip us. And right after this, he says basically the same thing is here. You were taught with regards to your former way of life to put to death everything that belongs there, and to put on the new self. And he does the same thing, and right in between, he talks about this 
maturing, growing to the stature of the fullness that is ours in Christ. The new self is being renewed. And so in verse 12, he goes on and he says to put on the new spiritual self because it's who you are. And that's what he says. You're to do it. Put on the new spiritual self as God's chosen ones. As those who have been chosen. Already holy. Already beloved. Already all these things. As those who are already holy and loved, put on, begin to become who you are. Not trying to be good so that God will love and accept us and to be good Christians and not bad Christians. We're not trying to be accepted and loved. It is as chosen ones. That means not only accepted, but he came and got you and accepted you as chosen ones, holy ones already, beloved ones already. Put on. I see what he tells us to put on here is in a bunch of pairs. Maybe they're meant to be, maybe they're not, but I'm going to kind of go over them as pairs. In verse 12, he says, put on then as these holy and loved people, put on compassionate hearts and kindness. The compassionate heart, the word there, the heartfelt compassion, is uh, what you've heard so many times probably, the word underneath, the heartfelt, the heart is splankna which is a Greek word for your innards, your kidney and your liver and your, your bowels, your guts. Right? He says to, to put on, because this is where they thought the seat of emotions were. So when it says to put on compassion, heartfelt compassion, it's right, it, it, it comes from the, the, you know, our emotional seat, the deepest place of us. It should be heartfelt and sincere compassion for one another. He says in kindness. graciousness to each other. Humility and meekness. Meekness, I don't know why they don't translate the same Greek words the same everywhere they get translated, but meekness here is usually or often translated gentleness. It's the same two words that Jesus uses, the exact same two words Jesus uses in the reference in... uh, Matthew eleven twenty nine, when he says, you know, let all who are weary come unto me and I will give you rest. Come to me and learn from me because I am gentle and humble of heart. Same two words. Put on gentleness and humbleness. That's why this description of what you're putting on, you're putting on Christ. The very character of Christ, the image of Christ, which is His image, he says, is the very image of the invisible God, the image in which you were originally created and lost, but as you're putting it on, you're being renewed in the image of your creator, the image of Christ. And so this is who he is, humble and gentle, which is the opposite of proud and harsh. Then he says, be patient. Patience and bearing with each other. Patience, long-suffering, enduring, bearing with other people. Right? Bearing with the people you work with. Bearing with your children, you know, and to be patient with them. Your children can try your patience. And children, I know that your parents try yours. 
right? But so all of us, young and old, we should be patient and bear with our parents who love us and before God are trying to do their best to care for us and to shepherd us toward the right life that is pleasing to God. And, and parents with their children who are growing and who go through these things and husbands with wives and wives with husbands. When sinners say, I do, you know, we get a house full of sinners, you know, who are struggling also together and patience with the server who is serving your food at lunch, who has their own stuff, patience and gentleness like Jesus Forgiving and love. And these two get extra treatment, don't they? Forgiveness. Don't just forgive. Hey, forgive. No, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Right, so he doesn't just, you know, he gives us the, the impetus for it. As the Lord forgave you. It made me always think of the, you know, the unmerciful servant, the parable of the, you know, the, the great king who forgives a debt of a million dollars to the guy. And the guy goes out and he starts, you know, give me my two dollars. You know, he's like, you know, he's not. He says, no, he says, as you were forgiven, you must. As the great king has forgiven, so you must forgive and put on love. Above all, over all. It's like all these things we're putting on as a character of Christ. As we put these things all on, he says, above all, like a crown on it all, put on love, which binds the whole together in a royal beauty and power. And all these things, really, all they are is love. It's what love is. Right? It defines the whole character, all these things. If you remember 1 Corinthians 13, right, he goes on and he says, love is patient. That's what you're to put on right here. Love is kind, kindness. Yes, that's what he said. Put it on here. Love keeps no record of wrongs. It forgives. That's exactly what he said to do here. It's not arrogant. It's humble, which is exactly what he said to be here. It's not rude. It's kind. You know, this is, this whole thing, he says, become loving people. God is love. Put on. You know what these things are. You know what they look like because you taste them in people around you. So the question becomes, how can we experience real change and transformation? How can I put to death the sin of all those other things and, and, and experience these graces? Let me run through a bunch of things that you need to know and I think that in the end you need to do. And the first thing you need to know is that the flesh remains. That while you're in this life, the flesh remains. This is why you have to put it to death. Right? He wouldn't say, put to death, therefore, all these things. If they didn't remain, they'd just be gone. But they're not gone. You know they're not gone. And so the flesh remains. It does not reign, but it does remain. And this is what the Scripture says. The power of sin over you as Lord and Master has been broken. And Christ now is your master and king. And that we, sin shall not be your master, so don't let it be your master is the way it comes. You died to sin, so don't let it reign over you anymore. But it does remain, and you will struggle, which is why in Romans 6, 11 and 12, 11 says, Consider yourselves then dead to sin and alive unto God in Christ. And then 12 says, Therefore, do not let sin reign so that you obey it. Because if you let it, 
you will obey it. And so we have this thing going on. There's a reality within. You must believe. And here's the first thing to, to make progress. You have to believe you're your own worst enemy. It's not out there. The world and the devil are out there. And they do tempt us, and they do come across our path. But here's the thing. They would have no power over you if there was not an enemy inside the gate. It would just bounce off you or roll off like water off a duck's back. Whatever the devil tempted or the world put before you, except you have an enemy inside the gate. So world and the flesh and the devil and the flesh is you, lives in you. <clears throat> and so there is this which is in us that conspires, in a sense, against us. So I'm my own worst enemy. He's not out there. It's me. This is why Galatians 5.17 rings so true to all of us. 5.17 says the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. This is our present experience. The flesh, the fallen self, the sinful self whose reign is broken remains and it still desires in you. It still is that within you that leans in the wrong direction, wants the wrong things. And yet the desires of the Spirit who now does reign in us, His desires are against the flesh. And these two are opposed to each other. And you know it. If you are a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. They are against each other. And he says the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. It's in there fighting against. The flesh resists the spiritual life. If you don't understand this, you cannot make progress. The flesh that is in you, your own worst enemy, you, is against the spiritual life. It resists the impulses of the spirit. Every good thing that you want to do is resisted. It's resisted. Paul says, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Resisting it. Right? When you want to open your Bible and read, and then you get this, yeah, well, it's kind of a rainy day, or, you know, or, I, you know, I, you know, or you, to pray, or to come to church, you know, and the thought comes out, this layout today, it's raining, it's kind of cold, and yet, do you understand there's a spiritual battle that is raging inside of you? The flesh is resisting every spiritual impulse. The flesh lusts, desires against the spirit. And it wants you to obey its desires. That's why he says, do not let sin reign. Do not let it win. Do not submit to it and obey it. Romans 7, and yes, I believe Romans 7 is about a believer struggling. Romans 7, this is, if, again, one of the reasons, it's not the only reason or even the best reason, but one reason I believe that Romans 7 is about a believer struggling is that it resonates, it will resonate with you right now, and if it doesn't, then I wonder if you're a Christian. Though so I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I want to do what's right. I want to be holy. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be patient, humble, and gentle. I want to do those things. I don't want to be angry and immoral and impure. I don't want to do those things. In my inner being, I delight after the law of God. But I see in my members and there's a war being waged against those things that I want to do. 
And sometimes it makes me captive to the law of sin and death. Sometimes I do those things that I don't want to do rather than doing the things that I want to do. And if you've never said this, and I do wonder about you, wretched man or woman that I am, who will deliver me? Who will deliver me? Oh, Spirit of God, have mercy. This is our daily warfare. The flesh resists the spirit. It is hostile. And we must walk in the spirit to not obey the desires of the flesh, to choose what is right. When I have the impulse to to do something good for someone and I end up not doing it, the flesh is lusting against, desiring against. When I have that desire to go towards someone and to to do what's right with them, and the, the flesh resists the spirit, there is this war always going on. And so I am going to call you to do something that Christians don't like doing anymore. Well, I say that. A lot of them don't. I hear it all the time in so many different ways that it's said to me. But here it is, what Christians don't like to do anymore that you're going to have to do. Work. Work. Spiritual work. There's a war in your soul My friends, you better rise up and work. I hear so many ways where Christians just think it ought to be easy. I work hard at work. I don't want to work hard at church. You know, I work hard in this and that. I don't want to have to put effort into, you know, the the spiritual life. You know, I got to do extra training at work. I don't want to do extra training at church, right? I, I want to, you know, it's the Sabbath. All I want to do is rest. I understand rest, don't get me wrong, but six days you shall labor, and that includes spiritual labor. People don't want to work hard. 1 Timothy 4.8 says, well, bodily training is of some value, and a lot of us have taken on and taken health seriously. You know, taking care of ourselves is part of a holistic approach to life, spiritual life. Well, well, bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way, and it holds promise not only in the present life, but in the life to come. And he is comparing bodily training, and you have to imply, and it's there, godly training, training in godliness. Bodily training is of some value, but training in godliness is of eternal value. And while we will put forth effort in our worldly intentions, he's calling us to effort in spiritual intentions. I'm going to make some of you mad. I'm going to say stuff. Things I've heard here, so some of you are going to, I'm sorry. Just try not to be mad at me, things like that. I, I hear stuff like, I don't want to go to Sunday school because it's like going to school. It's like work. It's like a class. And I've been there and I've done that. And I'm kind of, you know, I want something else, something more entertaining or something more engaging or something more. And there's a part of me that I kind of get what you're saying. But here's the thing. All of us went to school at least 13 years. If you're a high school graduate, at least 13 years you went, you went to school and you, you labored hard to learn stuff to master subjects, to understand the basics of of science and biology and math and history and and so forth, to be relatively grounded in in that. And you labored, and many of you went to college another four years, and I know some of you who worked nights and weekends to get a master's degree, and 
whatever, you know, business and education and so on. We have labored hard. I know many of you tell me all the continuing ed that you have to do to stay up in your job and to be able to advance and to do it. Now, I'll do continuing ed. What is that, classwork? I got to sit and I got to listen, sometimes weeks at a time. In other words, we're willing to do work for worldly gain, but often we are unwilling to lift a finger for spiritual gain. And what is it? The flesh resists the impulses and the desires of the Spirit. Because progress requires, as he says in verse 10, they're being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And you've got to know the scripture and you've got to know all of it. And we teach it systematically and richly and deeply. And, you know, but we're not, we're not interested in that education. I'll make some of you other mad. I heard folks tell me they don't like to read books. And it's not just that I like books. People think that if you like books, you're like this great reader. Um, I, my wife will tell you, I am the slowest, most laborious reader you ever did. We read it, we're reading the same page of something, and she's like, really, still? Can I turn the page? Like, I am the slowest, most laborious reader on the planet. It's work. If you graduated high school, you read books. And it is work, but you could read a chapter a week for a small group or a chapter a week to meet with one or two other guys or gals or a chapter a week just to read three or four books a year for spiritual growth and benefit. Do you understand that the, the collective and collected wisdom and knowledge of the human race and the Christian church has been captured in books? And there's a treasure to be had. Renewed in knowledge. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, steeping it in the truth, the truth of Scripture and of spiritual reading and spiritual relationships. But so often I encounter folks and I start having a conversation and we start talking about something that, that's difficult and they're just like, eh, you know, that's splitting hair. You know, you just go this way and I'm like, sometimes we have to think hard. God is infinite and there are so many things that concern him that are not simple. They're complex, they're, they're deep, they're rich, they're hard. Every image of the spiritual life that I'm just pulled out like a half dozen, there are more. All the images are laborious. It's a race for which you train. You go into training like an athlete who wants to win the Olympic crown. You go into training, he says, and then you run like one who wants to win. Right? Do you know what kind of running that is? It is it's serious business. He compares it to, he says, I box, but not like one who's just hitting air. Like, I'm going to box well. He, he compares it to a soldier who has given up the things of, of, of ordinary life and has embraced the hardships and the discipline of a military life, of good soldiers, of warfare, of farming, which once upon a time was not done with a John Deere. It was, it was laborious and intensive from dawn till dusk. We must work for it. If you don't hear anything else, I'm going to give you that. You've got to work for it. But let me just take a few minutes to run you through a few of the disciplines of the Christian life, of the spiritual life, the biblical life that is given to us, and to see how, how we've got to engage in them with some work. What we do now is we engage in them, but we do it superficially. And so they don't have the impact 
on your soul that they're meant to have because we don't take them seriously and work at them. One of them is preaching. One of them is listening to sermons or listening to teaching in so many ways. It will never have the impact that it was meant to have unless we do with it what the Bible tells us to do with it, which is to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And to be doers of the word and not hearers only. So he speaks to the hearers and says we should not only hear, but we have to become then doers. And to become doers of the word you heard, sometimes I think we think that if we just come and listen, like it's magic, and like it happens, you know, that all the things that he talked about today will happen. Well, they're not going to happen. Preaching isn't magic. It's like a meal that's been prepared for you. But my friends, you got to chew, and you got to swallow, you got to digest, and it's got to become part of your life, and the chewing, and the swallowing, and the digesting, that's you. I've prepared the meal. I I remember walking in the park in uh, Harrisonburg, Virginia with my wife after church one Sunday afternoon, coming across one of the students in InterVarsity that I work with, and he was out there with his, all of his Bible open, all this stuff lay around. As we were talking to him, he's like, yeah, I got my notes from the sermon this morning. I'm looking up all the scriptures and thinking through what this means for me. I'm praying, you know, praying it into my life. And, um, and I remember just being struck. At, I wasn't a preacher then, but how that impacted the way that I listened to sermons and thinking that, that, that I need to think about what I heard. You know, I may even have to look up some of those texts again and, and maybe pray about them in my life with God and, and to engage in what he was teaching me there. You know, I need to chew it up a little bit, maybe swallow it, and try to see if I can pray it into my digestion, into my, into my life, that it would actually bring change. You will have to work for it a little bit. Praying. Prayer life. So you want to be humble and gentle. If I want to be humble and gentle, I become aware that I'm a bit arrogant at times and, 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 and condescending and, and maybe at times then a little bit harsh. How do I see that change in me? We don't just say, oh, it says not to be that. I will go and not be that anymore, which is our general a- a- attack of this whole problem, isn't it? But we're going to have to do some work with God. I have to, I have to start noticing or being told when my wife tells me, You're being condescending, and I don't like the way you're talking to me. And this is happening in my life. You know, you are going to have to use your prayer life for spiritual warfare. You're going to have to use your, in your prayer life, you're going to have to specifically repent of the way that you are treating people. Specifically ask God to begin to change you and for the grace to go back and apologize and to make sure you make it right and to begin to to seek that humility that is in Christ. Maybe even to meditate and memorize some scripture like Jesus says, learn from me, I am gentle and humble of heart and write that on your heart. And learn then to hate your sin of not being gentle by spending time knowing that Jesus is gentle and humble and I'm not. And then people will tell me that and begin to hate that and long to be like Christ. And that's done only as we are with him. And then regularly repenting every time, repenting and seeking, asking and knocking and seeking that doors may be opened, that I might be changed. Humility is something that grows in me as I pursue it with him in his presence over against my sin in repentance and confession and longing and prayer and meditation about it, thinking about it. Do you see what I'm saying? Where you get it down into your life. 
It's work. Work takes time. You ever ask Ed Averett how he's doing? 2 Corinthians 4.16. We do not lose heart. Because I'm not all the things that I, you know, I haven't put them all off. They're not all to death. I'm not all that I am. Right? But we do not lose heart. 2 Corinthians 4.16. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed. Day by day. That's how Ed is doing. I hope that's how we're all doing. You know, that we're all, the outer self isn't it, all that it's going to be. It's going to waste in time. But our inner self is being renewed day by day. Because we are actively, by the grace of God, with spiritual effort, wrestling with putting to death our sin and, and putting on the graces of the character of Christ. Close with this. I posted it on, I never post anything on Facebook. And people are like, what, Robert posted something. It's like once a year, so like read it, you know, because he, he never does that. Somebody sent this to me. Tom Mayberry sent it to me. So I put it out there. An old Puritan says, as you love your souls, remember what turning it is the Scripture speaks of, what repentance and change of life that the Scripture is talking about. It is not to mend the old house, but to pull it down. And to build anew on Christ, the rock and sure foundation, it is not to mend somewhat the carnal course of life and try to manage our sin. It's to mortify, put to death the flesh, and to live after the Spirit. It's not to serve the flesh and the world in a more reformed way without any scandalous, disgraceful sins where I can manage it and keep it secret and it doesn't get out of control. It is not this, he says, with a certain kind of righteousness, it is external only, it is to change your master and your works and the end and the purpose of your whole existence and to set yourself and your face in the contrary direction and do all for the life that you never saw, that spiritual life to which you are being called, the high calling that is ours in Christ, to dedicate yourself and all that you have to God. This change, this is the change. It must be made if you will live. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have begun the good work in us. And that your promise is that you will carry it on to completion to the day of Christ. Oh, what a promise and what hope. But forgive us for our complacency. Forgive us for our spiritual laziness. Forgive us for not rising up and joining you in this great effort to see our souls transformed to the very image of our Creator. Father, I pray that you would teach us to labor hard after the life that is in Christ. Knowing that apart from Him we can do nothing. Not, not then relying on ourselves, but but coming to you, wrestling with you, spending time with you, thinking in your presence, asking, seeking, knocking, and so finding. Let us be found in Christ, maturing to the full stature of the fullness that is in him. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.